I want to thank uh, our intrepid liturgist this morning, uh, Goran, who, um, you know, I don't know in the history of our church if we'll ever again have a liturgist who has a hoarse voice because of the Croatian national team. <laughs> so thank you for that sacrifice of being here and sacrificing your voice some more. Good morning, St. Peter's. If you don't know me, my name is Richard, and I'm on staff here at St. Peter's Fireside. Uh, blessed Advent to you all. Advent, as Goran had mentioned earlier, is a time of waiting and anticipation. We wait and anticipate the birth of Jesus Christ, but we also wait and anticipate the second coming of Christ. So Advent reminds us that we live in the in-between times. In between when Christ walked the earth and when he'll come again. And so we wait and anticipate. Today, we hear from Mary, mother of Jesus Christ. We'll look at Mary's song and its three movements. Mary was a poor first century Palestinian Jewish girl. She was engaged to a man named Joseph. Now, earlier in Luke 1, she's told by the angel Gabriel that she's going to conceive God's son, the savior of the world. And she's going to do this as a virgin. Mary answers Gabriel with what I call a servanthood yes. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary then pops up here and there in the New Testament but we're left with her at the cross where she witnesses the brutal humiliation of her son. But Jesus does something remarkable on the cross. He entrusts her care to John, the beloved disciple. Now, I want to pause and think on this just for a moment. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mary had other children. But we know from Scripture that they really didn't get Jesus. You can find that in Mark 6. But that's okay, the disciples didn't get him either. Uh, at least not until Christ died and rose again. It's really remarkable when you read it, right? You're like, but, but it's there. Um, but once he died and rose again, they got it. But as we'll see in a moment, Mary did get Jesus. And she got him right away. I like to think a lot about the pain she must have carried. Her eldest child's friends and siblings didn't get him didn't understand who he was and what he was going to do. So Jesus leaves Mary, his mother, not with his siblings, but with John, the one disciple at the cross. We know that John eventually went on to Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, in the coastal region there. And we can assume he likely took Mary with him. I think reflecting on what likely happened to Mary after the cross sheds light on the hardship and pain that can come with being in a family. Mary shifts from her own family into the family of the then brand new church. I sometimes wonder what pain she must have felt leaving her other children, going off to a new place to help start a new thing called the church that was centered on the death and resurrection of her oldest child. I think Mary is someone who really understands the pain and hardship of family. Just something to think about. One more thing on Mary. 
After Jesus, Mary is the most venerated person in the history of Christianity. She's especially venerated by our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters. Now, this has led to some conflict within our faith with Christians like us who do not belong to those traditions. In particular, there is conflict around the Roman Catholic ideas that Mary never sinned and that she never died physically but was whisked away into heaven like Elijah. There is also discomfort with some, how some venerate and pray to her, seemingly making Mary more important than Jesus. I actually just read yesterday that tomorrow is, I believe, the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And so Guadalupe, Mexico has millions, millions of people in it right now, all over Latin America. Just uh, tells you how, after Christ, how big Mary is, right? Now, we're right to be skeptical of these ideas and ways of approaching Mary. However, too many have can go the opposite way. Too many don't really talk about her much at all, let alone preach sermons on her. They don't treat Mary as blessed. The first sermon I ever heard on Mary was from this spot, seven, six or seven years ago, preached by a bishop. I'd never heard a sermon on Mary my whole life. So here's the point. We don't worship Mary. We aren't Marians, we're Christians. <laughs> but we don't neglect her either. She's the blessed virgin who carried and conceived the Savior. No one else in history has that unique of a relationship with Jesus. She's the only one. He only has one mother, right? She is indeed blessed. And she gets that title, blessed, from her song, Mary's song, also called the Magnificat. This song contains three movements. Fundamentally, Mary is telling us something about God. God uses the lowly to save the world and advance his kingdom. God uses the lowly to save the world and advance his kingdom. Verses 46 to 49 are the first movement of Mary's song. You have to forgive me, I've been back into classical music lately. Her, the first movement, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. Her soul magnifies the Lord. Another way to put it, Mary's soul glorifies God. The word for clues us into why. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Mary is praising God because he picked her, a lowly servant, a poor Palestinian Jewish girl, probably no older than 16, to carry and bring to term the Messiah. And isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable? God didn't take the form of a king or a general, but a lowly man born to a lowly woman in a lowly nation. This is radically different from the ancient pagan gods. These gods were always above the physical world, you know, and even showed disdain for it. Oh, I've got to go down and do stuff and mess with people. Then I'm going to go back up to my kind of heavenly kingdom and do what I do. 
Our God became fleshy. He became physical in order to redeem all things, including creation. Jesus becomes flesh in Mary's womb. This is why all generations call her blessed. This is the favor she speaks of in her song. Think for a moment about how momentous this is. Few have described it better than the 17th century Anglican poet and priest John Donne. In his poem, Annunciation, which I think is one of the greatest Christian poems ever written in English, the last two lines we read, Thou hast light in dark, and shuttest in little room. Right? Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. Wow. A less poetic way to put it would be, there was immensity contained within Mary's womb. Think about that. Mary's womb, her body, her physical body, contained the Savior. But not just of Israel, and not even just of the entire world, but of every speck of the universe. That's what I call immensity. And here's the beautiful thing. Mary knew this. That's why she's giving glory and rejoicing. And her lowly position is not lost on her. God picked a poor peasant girl from a lowly nation. In many ways, Mary's song is a window on the Christian life. The enigmatic 6th century BC philosopher Heraclitus wrote many memorable little phrases. Many of you, I think, are familiar with his most famous one, you can't step into the same river twice. How many of you have heard that one? Right, that comes from this guy, who, by the way, I have the slide up. He, it makes him look like he's praying. He was not a Christian, right? This is 600, 500 years before Jesus was even born. Now, his, his statement that nature loves to hide is one of the wisest I've ever heard. It's one of my favorites, but we're not going to talk about that today, thank God. <laughs> I spent a lifetime thinking about that sentence. But another statement of his sheds light on the Christian life. It's one that the Anglican poet T.S. Eliot used as the epigraph to his masterpiece, The Four Quartets. Heraclitus says, the way down and the way up are the same. The way down and the way up are the same. This is a very rich statement for Christians. It means that the way down into the repenting of our sins is the way up to salvation in God. It means that the way down into our heart through contemplative prayer is the way up to closeness with God. It means that the way down through acts of mercy and self-sacrificial love is the way up to God. It shows us that sacrifice is at the heart of Christian life. The 20th century Russian Orthodox theologian Alexander Shmeyman tells us that the Christian life that the Christian is the one who receives the gift of life and offers it back to God in sacrifice. We receive the gift of life and offer it back to God in sacrifice. A sacrificial life is hard. It's one where you move somewhere you really don't want to, but because God wants you there. Where you open yourself up to someone even though they support that political party that you hate. Where you buy a homeless person food, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable. 
The fact that you're breathing right now is a gift from God. Just the fact that you're breathing oxygen is a tremendous gift. In what ways can you and I offer this gift of life back to God in a sacrificial way? But it is not just the Christian life where the way down and the way up are the same. It's also Christ's life. He came down into a womb, born into a lowly manger, died a brutal and humiliating death, and descended into hell for three days before rising. Talk about lowly. Talk about the way down. But through all this, Christ was giving us access to the way up, giving us access to God. Notice, I can't help it, I've got to say. So notice the icon here. This is one of my favorites. Look at Mary and Joseph's hands. What are they doing? The manger is never separated from the cross and the tomb. Christ's birth, death, and resurrection are all connected. The first movement of Mary's song is this. God used a lowly peasant girl to lower himself to bring salvation to us and all creation. The second movement of Mary's song is found in verses 50 to 53. I'll read it for you now. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich empty away. Mary's not holding back, is she? There are a few things to notice about Mary's second movement. The first is God's faithfulness. Notice the tense Mary uses when talking about God. Did you notice that? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things. Not God will, but God has. Mary is telling us what God is like because he's already shown his faithfulness. He's already shown his character. And justice is a part of God's character. That's a big theme in this movement, right? Mary is telling us that God's kingdom turns the world upside down. That's a key point in this passage. God's kingdom turns the world upside down. He has brought down the powerful and lifted up the lowly. He has, has filled the hungry and sent the rich empty away. Like in the first movement, we see God using the lowly to advance his kingdom. God showing favor on the good, not on the great. But we are in Advent, the season of waiting. And few things are harder to wait on than justice, right? I think so. Few things are harder to wait on than justice. We want justice now. Not tomorrow, not next year, now. And it can be so hard to wait for God to deliver justice. We may have to wait months or years or a lifetime. And we don't like that. So we seek other avenues. 
this day and age, politics is the primary avenue for justice seeking. But notice just how strongly politics divides us today. Conservatives, liberals, and New Democrats see the other as the enemy. And sadly, political division is creeping more and more into the church. But be, be careful. Sitting in your row is someone who is probably a supporter of that political party you hate. And you greet them. You may have just gre greeted them 10 minutes ago. And you'll take communion with them. And I don't know, however long my sermon goes. <laughs> 40 minutes? 50 minutes? No, I'm kidding. An hour. <laughs> God's kingdom, though, is unifying. God's kingdom is the peaceable kingdom. Any political ideology that doesn't have peace, true peace, as its goal is very far from God's kingdom, very far. I get asked a lot, uh, both in the church and at, um, at uh, I teach at, at a Catholic college, I get asked this a lot. How should a Christian engage in politics? And I always, a lot of times I end up thinking of Daniel, in the Old Testament, story of Daniel. He was taken with many Jews, not all of them, but most of them, to Babylon. He was in exile. But he rose to a prominent political position and served Babylon by managing their nation for the very people who took him captive. But when he was asked to stop praying to the one true God, he refused. So Daniel served God and Babylon, but God always came first. I think that's a great lesson for us. The point is that we are not called to escape into a private faith. Christianity is a public and shared faith, which means we have duties to those around us. We have duties to our society, especially to the poor and the downtrodden and to God's good creation. But it also means we don't identify first and foremost with our culture. We are Christians first, Canadians second, or maybe even third or fourth but we're Christians first. We should feel, I suggest we should feel a tension between our societal duties and our faith. You know, Jesus was offered a political kingdom. In fact, many around him expected him to be a political Messiah, but he refused. His kingdom is not of this world. We are called to be in our culture, but not of our culture. We're called to be in our culture. We don't escape but not of our culture. We engage and serve our culture. We don't escape it, but we also don't identify it. We identify with Christ first. And his kingdom will surprise us. It'll be worth the wait. Justice will be done. This is what Mary's telling us. The world will be turned upside down. The lowly will be lifted up. The poor will be made rich. Creation will be restored to full health. Mary is telling us we can trust God to do this because he's already doing it, and he's already done it. He has done these things. Remember, he has, he has, he has. The second movement of Mary's song is this. God will lift up the lowly and bring down the powerful. He uses the lowly to advance his kingdom. The third and final movement of Mary's song is found in verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Now, 
You could preach a whole sermon series on these two verses. In fact, I saw David Short, the lead pastor of St. John's last night at a get-together, and I told him I was preaching today on the Magnificat. He said, oh, we did a whole sermon series on that before. I was like, oh, that made me feel better. Um, but in particular, uh, I, this is the movement I'm going to give the least amount of time to, but don't mistake that. In a way, I'm doing it because I could have just focused on these two and given 30 minutes on just these two verses. Mary in these verses, in a way, is summing up the Old Testament. There's so much Old Testament in, this, in her song here, and especially these last two verses. God helped Israel according to the promise he made to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, the book of Genesis. The Messiah would come from one of his descendants. But not just Israel's Messiah, but the Messiah of the whole world. The Old Testament talks about this. Look, for example, at some of the Psalms or, or parts of the book of Isaiah. And Mary knows that she is carrying in her womb the Savior of her people and the Savior of the entire world. That's pretty intense. Talk about immensity contained in your womb. Mary is rejoicing because the Savior is here. He has come. And he's come to a lowly nation. Rome was the dominant power when Mary sings her song. In their eyes, the Jews were this small, relatively insignificant people group on the very edges of their empire. They would have laughed in Mary's face if she said she was pregnant with the salvation of the world. But... God lowered himself into the body of a lowly girl and became a lowly carpenter in a lowly nation. He didn't come to a noble woman in Rome. Now, verse 54 is connected with verse 50. In verse 54, Mary says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. In verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, uh, Israel's fear of the Lord's of the Lord, uh, their record on that was spotty, even spottier than English penalty kicks. Sorry, Lloyd. It's true. But Israel also had many faithful God fears over the generations, and God had made them a promise. Jesus Christ was and is the fulfillment of that promise. He was the one they were always waiting for. He was the one who would bring justice to this lowly nation. He was the one who would save the world and all of creation. Mary isn't just singing for the favor God showed her. She isn't just singing for justice God will bring to the lowly. She's also singing for God's fulfilled promise. Israel is finally getting its Messiah. The world is finally getting its Messiah. Talk about a wonderful thing to wait and anticipate. And remember, he comes as a lowly servant born to a lowly girl in a lowly nation. When you look for salvation, look low. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're anticipating. And Mary knew this. She knew this better than perhaps anyone else. 
She knew that the way down and the way up are the same. May we follow Blessed Mary's example this Advent season. Amen.